reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 in the contemporary English version. The next time that Jesus went into the meeting place, a man with a crippled hand was there. The Pharisees wanted to accuse Jesus of doing something wrong, and they kept watching to see if Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus told the man to stand up where everyone could see him. Then he asked, On the Sabbath, should we do good deeds or evil deeds? Should we save someone's life or destroy it? But no one said a word. Jesus was angry as he looked around the people. Yet he felt sorry for them because they were so stubborn. Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. He did, and his bad hand was healed. The Pharisees left, and right away they started making plans with Herod's followers to kill Jesus. Verses 7 to 12. Jesus led his disciples down to the shore of the lake. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. People came from Idumea, as well as other places east of the Jordan. They also came from the region from around the cities of Tyre and Sidon. All of these crowds came because they heard what Jesus was doing. He even had to tell his disciples to get a boat ready for him to keep from being crushed by the crowds. After Jesus had healed many people, the other sick people begged him to let them touch him. And whenever any evil spirit saw Jesus, they would fall to the ground and shout, You are the Son of God. But Jesus warned the spirits not to tell who he was. Verses 13 to 19. Jesus decided to ask some of his disciples to go up on a mountain with him, and they went. Then he chose 12 of them to be his apostles so that they could be with him. He also wanted to send them out to preach and to force out demons. Simon was one of the 12 and Jesus named him Peter. There were also James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. Jesus called them the Boanerges, which means thunderbolts. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus were also apostles. The others were Simon, known as the Eager One, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed Jesus. Verses 20 to 30. Jesus went back home, and once again such a large crowd gathered that there was no chance even to eat. When Jesus' family heard what he was doing, they thought he was crazy and went to get him under control. Some teachers of the law of Moses came from Jerusalem and said, This man is under the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. He is even forcing out demons with the help of Beelzebul. Jesus told the people to gather around him. And then he spoke to them in riddles and said, How can Satan force himself out? A nation whose people fight each other won't last very long, and a family that fights won't last long either. So if Satan fights against himself, that will be the end of him. How can anyone break into the house of a strong man and steal his things, unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can take everything. 
I promise you that any of the sinful things that you say or do can be forgiven, no matter how terrible those things are. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you can never be forgiven. That sin will be held against you forever. Jesus said this because the people were saying that he had an evil spirit in him. Verses 31 to 33. Jesus' mother and brothers came and stood outside. Then they sent someone with a message for him to come out to them. The crowd that was sitting around Jesus told him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside and want to see you. Jesus asked, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Then he looked at the people sitting around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Anyone who obeys God is my brother or sister or mother. Thank you. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 3. There was a time many years ago now when I felt as if I was living on the East Coast line, the trains. I used to get on the train at Berwick-upon-Tweed early in the morning and would move very quickly from the north to the south, passing through and stopping at Newcastle, Darlington, alas, quickly through North Allerton without stopping, on to York, next stop Peterborough, and occasionally we got to King's Cross. Mark's Gospel is a bit like a fast train journey. We're introduced to Jesus and we, we journey quickly through life and experiences and encounters with him. And that's what we're doing today in Mark chapter 3. Stopping off, as it like, at a few stations. Seeing what we can glean together from God's word. But I want to ask, first of all, how is your sight? Have you got 20-20 vision? How, how, how do you see life? Because how you see life will govern how you live your life. And Mark chapter 3 is all about how Jesus saw people and situations, how he saw the spiritual realm, how he saw and responded to those who opposed him and who sought to do away with him. So the first calling point is in the synagogue, in the meeting place, verses 1 to 6. And we see how seeing things makes all the difference. Jesus is presented with a man who is crippled, handicapped, with a withered hand. The religious leaders, in contrast, all they see was the opportunity and potential to oppose Jesus. They failed to see a man in his need. They were so caught up in their way of life, a perspective, a way of seeing things through which their default position was one of negativity or judgmentalism, quick to accuse. And Jesus was disturbing them, so their immediate default response was, he must be wrong. If somebody's a bit different from us, we have to fight that tendency to think they're wrong. Here were religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law who knew what religion was. And Jesus comes and he sounds a bit familiar because he uses the scriptures, but he seems to be very different also. And their default position was to say, this can't be right. Jesus, in contrast, sees the need of a man's healing and he reaches out with compassion. He takes the opportunity to heal, not accuse, to show compassion, not condemnation. When we prayed for those folk in our church who were ill this morning, Glenn didn't say, well, I just need to check where they are doctrinally. I just need to make sure that they're ticking the theological dogma boxes. No, we prayed for them because we're reflecting the heart of love and compassion for those in need this day who need to know God's touch in their lives. How we see life 
affects how we see people, affects how we relate to the world, how we relate to God. All of us are shaped in our lives by our upbringing, by hereditary factors, by our experiences of life. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a Geordie. Why I haven't got an accent is because I was born in West Monk Seaton, which is posh Geordie. And then at 10 years of age, I went to live in Harrogate. And I was sent to elocution lessons. Obviously, I've forgotten that bit. But to get rid of the Geordie accent. If you're wondering what the unforgivable sin was, you have it there. I was influenced by my upbringing. And then I came to faith in the Cairngorms of Scotland. Bible married. We went to Bible college together, university. And then God called me to a very different culture from West Monk Seaton and Harrogate. To Portrack, Teesside. I'd hardly been on a council housing estate before in my life. And yet God was at work there. I came fresh out of Bible college and university and my mantra was John 3.16 about the God who loved the world. It's about preaching salvation, about people coming to know Jesus and it still is. But God reminded me that when Jesus came, his first announcement was that the good news was for the poor. It wasn't so much John 3.16, it was Luke 4. I have come to bring good news to the poor, to set people free who are oppressed to bring justice and compassion. We're all influenced. And what we're invited to do in this series is to journey with Jesus so that we might be more influenced by him, that he might continue through all our experiences of life to help us to see life through his eyes. I was encountering situations and people in a context that forced me to see people through the eyes of Jesus and not through my upbringing. Journeying with Jesus. Our relationship with him should govern the way in which we see all of life. So Jesus gets up in the synagogue and he asks the question, is it lawful to do good or evil? And the irony is that when Jesus is faced with the question of Sabbath observance, he moves in the opposite direction and it appears almost that he takes a liberal position on it. He does so in this instance because observance of the Sabbath had become a weapon. It had become a badge of exclusivity. And everybody who didn't observe the Sabbath in the way that these Jews observed the Sabbath was therefore wrong. And it had become a sign to his fellow Jews of a commitment to an exclusive nationalism. And it's easy to see how if you ally religion with nationalism, they become wedded together and they become sectarian and divisive and judgmental. And in this no-win situation... You had Jews saying, well, we're Jews and we observe the Sabbath this way. And actually, some of the Jews that we know don't. So therefore, they're wrong. And in this no-win situation, the whole point of the commandment about the Sabbath, which is about celebrating, it's about celebrating God's creation, it's about celebrating God's redemption, past, present and future, is lost. When the law becomes more important than the Lord, you end up with religion and not Christianity. When you end up with rules and regulations rather than the reality of the love and compassion that flows from the heart of God, you've missed the point. Now, according to the law, healing was work and therefore work on the Sabbath was wrong and you couldn't do that on the Sabbath. The religious leaders were applying the letter of the law. They had a religious spirit about them rather than the spirit of the law which is life-giving. Now, it's really easy, isn't it, for us to be kind of standing here condemning of those religious zealots, the scribes and Pharisees. But we have to examine our own hearts, don't we? 
Because it's hard to keep our hearts from not being hardened. It's hard not to keep soft and supple and keep growing in our understanding of God in his ways. And it's easy to resort into a kind of fundamentalism that is not really faith but prejudice. It's not only about being a follower of Jesus, but what kind of follower? I'm an evangelical. Yeah, but what kind of evangelical? Well, I'm an evangelical charismatic. But what kind of evangelical charismatic? Well, I'm an evangelical charismatic who actually draws a lot from the monastic tradition. Yeah, therefore you're wrong, Roy. Today begins the, not only our week of prayer and fasting, but today marks in the Christian calendar in the Western world a week of prayer for Christian unity. Gosh, if you thought my yellow hat in the video was something, a sight to behold. You should have seen me when I was at Down Cathedral, licensed with my robes and albs and gowns and all the rest. I'm not at home within those particular circles, but they're not things to fall out or divide about. Jesus said, the world will know that we are his disciples if we love one another. And that's why the service tonight at the Methodist Church, if you can get along at 6.30, is important because we're saying to the town, we're announcing to the principalities and powers that we are united in Christ and we serve the kingdom of God in this place. I say to those who are Anglicans, Methodists and Pentecostals and URC, I'm a Baptist because I just don't like to take a risk. <laughs> but we don't have monopoly on truth. A narrow-minded sectarian prejudice is a sin in the sight of God. Jesus' prayer still needs to be answered that we are men and women of unity. Jesus was talking here and demonstrating here that these are matters of life and death. What is good and what is evil. And in the light of that, let's not get waylaid by religious nitpicking because there was a man in need here. The kingdom of God was coming. The good news of Jesus was being announced. Light was coming into the darkness. People's lives were at stake. The Bible college that Shirley and I went to, which was then known as Lebanon Missionary Bible College, or Lonely Maids and Bachelors Club. <laughs> we went as a married couple, I hasten to add. Became Northumbria, then became international. And then you were at International Glen when it merged with Glasgow at BTI. But I remember our principal, Doc Rigby, saying, don't major on the minors, major on the majors. And the majors are this, that God loves the world. And our faith should commend the faith, not be off-putting. We should be warming people to life in Jesus, not warning them all the time, warming them to life in Christ. Instead of seeing, as the scribes and Pharisees, what God can do, it's very easy to resort to kind of default responses that can get in the way. I remember a number of years ago speaking at Spring Harvest, at Bracing Skegness, as a community we led the worship there for many years. And uh, having led the worship at the celebration and, and the adrenaline is flowing and people are going back to their, their chalets and kind of relaxing for the night. If you've led worship, repaired all day, your adrenaline is running, you didn't have a meal. So we often used to go out of Colditz, I mean out of the Butlins camp. <laughs> and we'd walk along the seafront and, and often we would go for a late night curry. And so we were allowed out, the guards allowed us out. <laughs> I watched The Great Escape recently. And uh, we walked along, and there had been a, a seminar earlier in the day, as there were many seminars, and on that one of the seminars, it was wrestling with the issues of human sexuality and Christian faith. And as we were walking along towards Skegness, along the front, 
We were just aware that there was somebody who was walking down to the sea at 11 o'clock at night. And they continued to walk. And then they walked into the sea. And they were not going for a swim. Not their real name, Alan, was walking into the sea to take his life. We managed to get to him. We managed to get help for him. He had been in a context of a seminar where wrestling with issues in his own life, tortured, he came to the conclusion that the church condemned him and therefore all that was awaiting for him was judgment or at best an end. I thank God that we went for a curry late at night and Amanda is now going on with God. It raises all kinds of questions. It throws me and challenges me. But I know that whatever context we find ourselves in, our first response must be compassion with the love of God. And our doctrines and our theology and our understanding of God and his ways has to be rooted in the nature of God, the God who is love. Jesus shows us the way in which to reach out to people. When he saw the religious leader's response to the man's need, he was angry, and rarely was Jesus angry. And when he was angry, and there are just a few occasions recorded for us in the Gospels, it's rarely, if ever, directed towards unbelievers, but it's nearly always directed to those who have a religious spirit, who take the life out of the law, and who peddled and preached condemnation, not compassion. And of course, this not only heightened the religious leaders' suspicion and hatred of Jesus, it led them to forming an alliance with the political parties of their day to get Jesus away with. And it was dangerous then and it's dangerous today when people equate religion with any one nation or any one political party. It's true in Israel today when people confuse the state of Israel as the people of God. Or in the states when people equate any party or any political leader as God's appointed. The USA is no more the promised land as Great Britain is, or as the Germans believed Hitler to be appointed by God, and Germany to be taken back. Any equating of nation and state is a road to evil. I love the Bible. Because the Bible speaks to us today, not just about personal salvation, but life. The kingdoms of this world are not the kingdoms of our God, and we must not confuse the two. The kingdom that we're ushering, declaring, proclaiming, serving here in North Allerton and beyond is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's different. There's righteousness and truth and justice and peace and healing and shalom. So in this incident... It's about how we relate to life and how we see life. And then in verses 7 to 12, we have the withdrawing and the mentoring and the silence. Jesus withdrew with his disciples, which is a repeated practice. What do we see in Mark chapter 1, 35, 39? Jesus withdrew to be alone with the Father. That's one of the gifts of our retreat at Wydale Hall, is to be alone with the Father and together with the Father, to withdraw from the everyday, ordinary experiences of life, to take time out, to listen to what the heart of the Father is saying to us. It was a regular pattern. And the whole theme, the vision that is emerging for us to rest and breathe and pray that we have opportunity to do this week in our week of prayer and fasting. But Jesus also withdrew with his disciples because there was the need to be with them, to train them. It's one of the greatest priorities of Jesus' ministry was to mentor his disciples. 
I go around lots of churches. One of the things that I so value and welcome and affirm Glenn and all the leaders in this church is the commitment to mentoring because it's the pattern and way of Jesus. If we become a consumer church, then our leaders become people who have to kind of run the church and, and keep goods and services going and, and looking after people and making sure that they're kind of fed and watered and supplied and all that. There's one aspect of pastoral ministry. One of the greatest aspects of leadership within the church is to mentor the next generation. I would say that anybody over 50, and I'm, I'm just over 50 by 12 years, <laughs> our task is to not get in the way, but to be stepping stones for the next generations. To follow the example of Jesus, who in making disciples, who made disciples. A large crowd, we read, followed. The news was spreading. People were, the word that is used there is crowding him. It's the same image of crushing grapes. And it's really interesting that here in Mark 3, we realize again and again that Jesus did not advertise. He didn't need to publicize his ministry. Jesus was not a celebrity. He didn't hit the campaign trail. He didn't hold mass rallies to elicit support. He came not to build an empire, but he came to usher in the kingdom of God, the good news. Which, you know what? The kingdom of God often doesn't come in a blaze of glory with trumpets. It comes in quiet, hidden ways. It comes in transformation. It comes in healing. It comes in acts of righteousness. It comes in issues of justice and peace. Another thing going on here, Jesus, as for us, he was often accompanied by interruptions. Do you get interruptions in your life? Yeah. And here's Jesus teaching us how to deal with interruptions. And, and we lean, learn from Jesus that he discerned and responded to interruptions. He discerned whether these were God-ordained opportunities or whether they were distractions. And we need the discipline to be able to discern whether it's God who's brought this person across our paths or whether it's actually distracting us from what the will of God is for us this day. We're told that the evil spirits saw Jesus. They recognized him. They saw that God was walking on the earth in the person of Jesus. And it's a reminder to us there's a spiritual dimension to life. There is more than the physical matters in the realms of reality. We are in a battle. That's why prayer and fasting is important, because it actually helps us equip ourselves for the battle. But let me encourage you, we're in a battle, but it's nothing to be frightened of. Christ has won. And it worries me that when some Christians have a kind of unconscious dualism, like there's a battle going on, who's going to win, who's going to win? No, Jesus has won. And it's just kind of the after effects of the battle that has been won that we're engaged with. We do have to put, as Ephesians 6, to put on the whole armour of God. I love the imagery. Radio 4 service today was from County Down in Northern Ireland. And the imagery of St. Patrick's breastplate prayer, I bind unto myself this day the strong name of the Trinity. It's about putting on the armour of God. We are in a battle, but we need not be afraid because we follow the one who is victorious, who has crushed the enemy. Rest, breathe, prepare and pray. This helps us in the battle. Jesus says to the spirits, doesn't he, don't tell anyone whom I am. What was that all about? It was something that Jesus said to some of the people that he healed. You see, the more news got out about Jesus, the more opposition was being aroused. And the more opposition was being aroused, more plans were being put in place to oppose Jesus and have a way with him. And there's something here about God's timing being perfect. And that's why he silenced the evil spirits. And that's why he said to those who were healed, don't go shouting it above everywhere, 
because my time has not yet come. God's ways and God's will is perfect. Next stop, the call of the disciples. There are lots of reasons and speculations, and you can read commentaries, theories about why 12, but I want to take a sociological and organizational theory perspective which complements those things. And it's simply this, Jesus chose 12 through whom the world would be changed. It's the dynamic of the few. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus came, ushered in the kingdom of God, brought transformation, hope and peace to the world, that he chose 12 people. And through 12, and there were many other followers, but essentially he spent time and invested time with the 12. And they were committed to him. He knew that he was to die and others would carry the message on, and so he called these 12 to be with him. Now isn't it true that we are committed to what we follow? I don't know if anybody else saw Middlesbrough on the telly the other night against Fulham. Yeah, it wasn't a commentary on how they performed that I was asking for there. It was an away game. It was at Fulham. And do you know what I could hear singing even though they were losing? I could hear Borough supporters singing their hearts out. Stupidly, they were the greatest team in football the world has ever seen. But that's just delusional. But they were committed to the ones that they follow. And we as disciples of Jesus are called to be committed to the one that we follow. And as we follow Jesus, he uses us. And he took the 12, and it's the principle of multiplication. Remember your 12 times 12 tables? And the greatest way I would suggest to reach people is small units reaching out to small units, multiplying. You see, I'm no doubt some of you here will give thanks to God for the rallies that you went to and the big meetings and praise God for that. But I want to suggest to you, that's not how people are reached today. People are reached in small units. There was a lovely experience on the Castlegate Estate in the pioneering that we're doing there just before Christmas where we held carols on the green. That's all we've got. We haven't got a village hall. We've got the Willow Bet, but that's off the estate. So we had carols on the green. And at 20 to 3, with a PA system and about eight people, I stood there worried. I'd like to think I prayed, but I just worried. I thought this is embarrassing. And then at three o'clock, there was about 15 people, so it was slightly better. And then Dave Johnson kind of put the carols on the music and it blasted out, and my cringe and embarrassment levels reached heights. But then I saw people coming out the houses. And didn't we have about 78 people join us by 20 past three? And the words of the song came to be, one shall tell another and he shall tell his friends and husbands, wives and children shall come following on. It's a small group reaching a small group who reach a small group who reach a small group. And I'd like to suggest with our base camp as we move out, we're not all going out on exposition like some great rallying party. We're going out in small groups to meet with those whom we work with, who we share with, who we encounter, who we socialise with the unreached peoples whom we don't know who they are yet. To be a disciple of Jesus is to spend time with Jesus. He called his disciples to be with him. And we become like the people we spend most time with, don't we? If if you've been married for a long time, don't you share similar values? Don't you have similar outlooks on life? You, You become like the people that you share your life with and you have similar interests. So if we hang around with Jesus, we start to become like Jesus. 
We part to embrace the, the ways and the values and the outlook of Jesus and the values of his kingdom permeate our lives. Disciples are called to be with Jesus. And we do that through prayer and scripture and friendship and fellowship with Jesus. But we're also doing it by going out and doing things in Jesus' name. I, I learned on portrait many years ago that so whatsoever you do to the least of these, you do to me. So actually by going and volunteering in the living rooms or being a street angel or being at, what is it called, crossroads, the homeless work shelter here, or just being with people, being out there and serving people, being friendly to people. We need to be friendly. We are, you are a friendly church. You've welcomed Shirley and I, even though we're not from Yorkshire. Well, she is, but you know, you've invited a stranger in your midst from the Geordie land and you've welcomed us. We've got to take that welcome out into North Allerton, where there is loneliness where there is darkness, where there are lots of people who just don't have friends. It's not rocket science. Disciples are called to follow him. The word that is sometimes used here is apostle, the sent out ones, the ambassadors. Sounds a bit scary, doesn't it, to be sent out. Base camp, it's safer to stay put than to go out. But surely this is a season where God is calling us as a church to move out. Why? Well, it's simple. Because if we've got good theology and good doctrine, we know that John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. And the vast majority of the people of North Allerton and beyond, the 95% will never come over the threshold of the doors of this church. Except possibly in a box. We learned this week, didn't we, from Fresh Streams, when people were talking about this. That actually it was Simon Goddard who was saying that it used to be kind of near a 90% and now it's near a 95% of people who will not be reached within the confines of our services and our buildings and our meetings. There's a place for our services and our meetings. There's a place for base camp. There's a place for people to come and encounter here. But the vast majority of people for whom Sunday services is utterly irrelevant will not know about Jesus unless we go to them. And that's an exciting prospect. It's not something to be scared about. And let's, in conclusion, be encouraged as we journey with Jesus. Because Jesus enjoys calling us to follow him. He invites us to participate in his missional adventure. And he invites you and I to be part of that. To be part of his amazing love campaign. Bringing hope and peace and reconciliation to the world, to the people and the planet. When you list through these names of the disciples, what a motley bunch they were. They were northerners. I think it's rather cruel of Luke in Acts to talk about them as uneducated northerners, ordinary blokes. It's just a bit cruel. It was, a, it, was a, it was an evidence of a doctor that didn't need to actually be appearing there. Peter, who suffered from mutton-mouth disease, great heart and intention, but opened his mouth on occasions, just got it so wrong. They were unreliable, they were proud, there were some of them who were saying, can we have the first place, can we sit at the top table? They were quite cowardly. I'll never leave you, Lord. I'll never forsake you. Where are you? You're gone. Simon the Zealot. My favourite is Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. I love the reality of the Gospels. Simon the Zealot was actually a terrorist. Had blood on his hands. He killed people who were Romans, who were sympathisers with Romans. And Jesus calls him to be a follower, to give him a cause that's worth fighting for. And among that group of disciples, he calls Matthew the tax collector, who's a collaborator with the Romans. Have this lovely image of Jesus saying when he sent them out in twos, Matthew, you go with Simon. 
What a motley bunch. I'm not sure any of them would have got through the first stage of discernment and selection. I'm not sure they would have even been allowed to have accompanied the elders, let alone a place to train at college for ministry. They were a real mixed bag of people that God used to serve his purposes. Then, and I look around with all due respect, and now. Isn't it great that God can take ordinary people like you and I, with all our faults and failings and all our struggles and all our weaknesses, and somehow, through his grace and by the power of his Holy Spirit, actually, we can bring the kingdom of God with others to bear upon this place. Isn't that great news? Don't ever think that you haven't got a purpose in life. Your purpose in life is to love God, and if you love God, the love of God will flow through you and impact the lives of many, many more people. What a miracle. And we've been chosen and called and invited by Jesus to work with him in the power of his spirit to bring life to people. Isn't that exciting? Our legacy as new life is to bring new life. Our legacy as individual disciples is to make our contribution to broads bringing life to people, the kingdom of God, here on earth as it is in heaven. So let's continue to journey with Jesus. Breathe and rest. And now in a season to be moving on, reaching out with compassion, reaching out with reconciliation, justice and freedom, beauty and grace and well-being. Did you see the article that was written in the Darlington and Stockton Times? Still can't get my head around. I asked for a local paper and they tell me I have to read the Darlington and Stockton Times. What's wrong with North Allerton? Anyway, that's a separate issue, not worthy of making any points about. There's a lovely article in there that Rishi Sunak put in about Renew Wellbeing and the living rooms. And we're involved with other people. You see, God's using all kinds of people. And Jesus is the one who calls us to follow him, who sends us out in the power of his spirit to be good news people. Like many a train journey, I'm afraid, that we ain't going to get to King's Cross today. But the buffet car awaits us. For here is the place where we are fed and sustained and nurtured. Those of you who are lapsed Anglicans will remember that we feed on him in taking bread and wine by faith with thanksgiving. And we go out in Christ's name to live and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the whistle-stop journey that we're taking through Mark's Gospel and for the amazing images and insights that we see of you, Lord Jesus, in the way in which you related to people. And you've invited us, Lord, to, to be followers of you. Help us in that journey, Lord. Help us to be like the disciples of old who can leave our nets or leave our desks or just give up those things, any things that are stumbling blocks so that we might follow you wholeheartedly, so that we might journey with you, so that we might be discipled by you, so that we might learn what it is to to see the world and to see people and to see situations and needs with a heart that flows from your compassion and the eyes of Jesus that bring transformation and life to the few and to the many. Forgive us, Lord, when any attitudes of ours kind of trip us up, when we we turn your law into letter of law rather than spirit of law, when we are people of warning and judgment rather than warming and compassion. Help us to be those men and women, Lord, who will journey with you, who will learn to breathe more in the presence of you, the living God, who will learn to pray and to seek you, 
who will learn what it is to rest with you and with one another. And then in the power of your spirit to be the people that you want us to be, to the people of this town and the surrounding villages and for this area of North Yorkshire and beyond, Lord. For the people in Ghana, for the people in Romania, for the people yet to be discovered and reached. For the people on our estates, Lord. For the people in our workplaces, for the kids in the schools. Lord, for those who have no home and for those who have no hope. Help us, Lord, to be your good news people in following the good news. The one who is indeed, as we prayed at the outset, the way, the truth and the life. In whose name we pray. And in whose name we gather around this, his table, not our table, but his table, to feed on him by faith with thanksgiving. Amen.